So let me get this sermon started by stirring the pot just a little bit. I'm going to throw out a term that's controversial in the church, legalism. Minute now, people, some people's ears are on fire. They're like, oh, what is he about to say? It's, it's a topic um, that can be up for much debate, unfortunately, sometimes shared in different stories of woe or sorrow, or maybe you have fun sitting around the coffee table uh, and just sharing stories when you're visiting with other people. When you see the term legalism, before I go any further in it, I want to define it. One writer put it this way, legalism is raising to the level of biblical mandate and command what God has neither commanded nor prohibited in his word. It is taking our traditions and preferences and imposing them on others as an act of, of spiritual superiority, even though the Bible does not make such practices universally prescriptive. So I define the terms, Mike. Because legalism, legalist, it's a term that right now in our modern church can be very much abused. We've got to know what it is. Because unfortunately, sometimes with that term, with a broad paint, with a paintbrush, we paint very broadly different things. Sometimes if I disagree with somebody, I may throw out they're a legalist. It's almost like the ultimate shutdown. And maybe at times, never said face to face, but in gossip behind somebody else, be like, hey, that person, they're a legalist. And then instantly, if that person's been raised in church, they know what that means. <gasps> That's a negative. But they're not convinced it's a negative. Oh my goodness. Self-righteous Pharisees. Now we think about, especially my time, I grew up, some of you guys know my story, in a very militant, legalistic way. I mean, HBO and Discovery just put out a documentary in the last couple of months about a portion of my past of the church network I was in and how dangerous it is. It's in the news a little bit today. That was my childhood through elementary school. I remember things that were taught that now I look at was really legalistic. A fun one, more popular, many people can... Uh, you know, say, hey, I, I, I've heard that before, was the preaching of never go to a movie theater. To go to a movie theater is a sin. That was, as a child, in my childhood, in my elementary years, that was what I was taught. That's how I saw it. Then I was really confused when my dad was like, hey, on base, they've got a dollar movie. We're all going to go see Toy Story or something. And then to get to church, you got mom giving us a Miranda rights of don't tell anybody that we went to the movie theater yesterday. You don't want us to get in trouble. You'll be in trouble if you let that leak. You sit in the backseat of a minivan, and you're just like, okay. It's a kid, you don't know, but then all of a sudden you hear it from the pulpit. And that's where it became such a negative thing. All of a sudden, instead of maybe talking about, hey, watch what you see on television, guard against what type of entertainment comes in, it was just broadly brushed, like, don't even go. Is for some reason, with that or any of my friends that went to, I would just see them as like a, you know, seven-year-old Mike going, they're sinners, they're sinners. That was taught to me. You know, I was taught as a kid that the only Bible you could use was this King James. Now, a lot of people could pr prefer it, but I was taught in such a way, legalistically, that if you did not use the King James, you were either in great error or sin, or you could not tell me or convince me you were a believer. A preference, you could use whatever translation you want. A church can use whatever translation they're going to preach from. But in my mind, as an elementary school kid, they were either in super great sin, or that person's a liar, he can't be saved because he uses an NIV. 
That was legalism for me as a kid. Now, there are areas where we all have to say, this is where we use it negatively. People have preferences or standards that are different than yours. We automatically go, they're legalistic. But everybody has preferences. Everybody has standards. It's only when you make it a biblical mandate, and most dangerously, if me from this pulpit preaches something that's not supported by God's word, do we entertain or do we cross into that area? You know, music's an area of preference. The way we do our worship music here is going to be different from the three or four churches that I, we could see around us. Personally, I enjoy listening to Christian rap. I don't think that's Rich Johnson's preference, right? He may like something else. I can say that we've had a lot of discussion with music. But here's where it becomes a problem is if I use my standard of like, I don't know why he's not listening to that. He must be less spiritual than me. Or if he did the reverse to me. Dress code. Preference. A lot of people, when they decide what Sunday dress, again, until I arrived in Noblesville in 2016, every Sunday I was always going to church with a suit and tie. My dad, that was his preference for three sons that were living in his house. The Bible college I went to, you had no other choice but to wear a suit and tie. And then I was employed by them and I had to always show up in a suit and tie. Let me tell you, everybody, I hate wearing suit and ties. They were uncomfortable, but I had to wear it. Now, most of you are like, I've never seen you in one. There's a reason, right? There's only one place in Indianapolis I'll show up in a suit and tie. It's a Korean church that asked me or Foley at times to fill the pulpit. Hey, it's their preference. It's their standard. I have no problem putting it back on, even though right as I get back to my car, I'm taking a tie off and a jacket off, right? There's preference to their standards. But when they become something that we judge others and say they can't be spiritual enough, or that they are in sin because our tradition and custom has now risen to the level of biblical mandate, that's an issue. That's a terrible issue in the church. Right now, I want us to transition from our present day Western church, things that you maybe, you knew, you experienced, but now put ourselves here in Mark chapter 2 where we see Jesus facing against the Pharisees. He is clashing, he is warring with them in this narrative with these different accounts with their legalism. We've heard it the last couple of times as we journey through Mark chapter 2. They're going up to him and they're wondering, or they're judging, and they're going, how could he? And it's their legalism of the Pharisees that's dominating and putting down the Jewish people that Jesus, he's coming across as, man, he's really opposite from us, but he's got oh so much more he wants to show them, the freedom that is in him, the grace that he's about to bring. So when we go here, in Mark chapter 2, the Pharisees' opinion, as we begin in the top part of chapter 2, they, they keep getting pretty negative about Jesus. Why? Because when the paralytic came in, Jesus did not just heal him, he forgave his sins. They're like, who is this dude to say that? Then you move on to the next account. He is calling a tax collector, and he's having dinner with sinners and tax collectors. And they're like, who is this guy that's having you know, a social time around these sinners, these these tax collectors, we, we don't even touch them with a 10-foot pole. How dare he do that? And then they come and say, hey, why aren't you doing our custom of fasting? And she's like, do you not know who I am? Why am I here? We, we're, not, we're not going to fast. I'm going to tell you why. But for them, they're like, why are you going against what we're having here? And then in today's text, they're going to see him as a Sabbath breaker. The one that violates the holy sanctity of their Sabbath. He's clashing. He is bumping heads with them. And we're going to see, even at the end of this account, they're ready to go to war with him. 
the title of today's sermon, to me, I think really best fits is this. Sabbath. Huh? What is it good for? So you're going to find out a war happening that's escalating to this part. What it's going to be called is the Sabbath. And genuinely, when we look at this in their context, you're going to wonder, what is it good for? Jesus here is going to expose them for who they are as the religious leaders of that time. Go to Mark chapter 2, verse 23. We'll read there, Mark 2, verse 23. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And also he gave some to his companions. Then he told them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So then the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Continuing on in chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. Join me in prayer. Lord, as we come before you, we ask for your Spirit's guidance with us this morning. For your Holy Spirit to work within our hearts. As we come ready to receive from your word, we come to proclaim your word and the truth in it. Be with me, give me clarity of mind, speech, to be a vessel just to share what's here. May your spirit guide me. May I do all the honor and glorify you. Lord, I pray for the one that does not know you as Lord and Savior today, that today be the day of salvation. Pray for the one that is discouraged, that they find encouragement. And I pray for the one that is in sin, that they are overcome with conviction of their need to repent. Lord, be with us. It is all honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So to violate the Sabbath at that time, that is a very big deal. Now for us in our Western culture, you know, we hear people talk about a day of rest. We kind of think, well, theirs was that time, ours on a Sunday. We don't, sometimes we miss out what's really important about the Sabbath uh, to the Jewish people. It's one of their defining characteristics. Them as a nation, as a people group, from the very beginning we see in Scripture, this is something that really defined them against any other nation that was around them, and it was meant to be that way. You know, the Sabbath extends from sunset on Friday till sunset on Saturday. The fourth commandment set the Sabbath for the Jews. It followed the divine order of creation. God created in six days, and on the seventh, he rested. And this day would be a day of rest. No one was supposed to work during that time. Exodus 20 tells us, uh, starting verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. This is what's interesting. We all kind of used to like, yeah, I get two days off. I'm going to get one day off. But this is a whole nation doing this because the list is pretty exhaustive. You, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who's within your city gates. All of them, everybody, nobody works. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. They observed it, but also the Sabbath was an eternal sign from God to his chosen people. In Ezekiel 20, says, I also gave them my Sabbaths to serve as a sign between me and them so that they would know that I am the Lord who consecrates them. It takes on heavy importance here. Now, the Jewish uh, leaders um, in the Mishnah, they created 39 categories or classes of work that would profane the Sabbath. Now, some of these areas or categories, that make sense to us. Hey, don't, go, don't work, don't hunt, no plowing, no butchering. We're like, okay, I got it. But then there were some areas that seem a little kind of obscure. Hey, you cannot untie or loosen a knot. You can't sew more than one stitch if you're going to repair clothes. You cannot write one letter. That was adding to some of this. And you're like, okay. You know, they tried to cover every type of scenario. Um, you know, they said, hey, if someone broke their foot on the Sabbath, you, you are prohibited from setting a broken foot or hand. Because it wasn't life or death if it was broken. You just can't set it. You know, if your roof fell in, you maybe will be able to temporarily prop it up, but you definitely can't repair the roof until sunset on Saturday. One of the crazier ones I saw was, hey, if a, bel- if a building fell down, you're allowed to remove rumble, the rubble around it, all this stuff, on the Sabbath to check if there are survivors. Now, if they're alive, you can rescue them. But if these two here are dead, sorry, you're just sitting right there, Jess and Bree. But if these two are dead, you know what? You've got to leave the corpse laying. Don't touch it, don't move it until sunset Saturday. Those are rules. You could be in violation of the Sabbath, trying to rescue and take care of people in a building that just collapsed. For them, hey, no work was allowed. Only special exceptions if it was absolutely necessary, and the only exception for absolutely necessary if it was life or death. So for them, they took it seriously. And we come here in Mark 2, as each account we read of Jesus clashing with the Pharisees, there's escalation going higher and higher, and we see that it's going to come at the height of escalation here when it comes to their Sabbath. You know, we've got two scenes in this text centered around the Sabbath. Jesus is going to continue asserting his authority, and he's going to declare that day to them that he is Lord of the Sabbath. So the big idea, what I want to journey with as we go through these two narratives, is that Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, releases us from legalistic chains to joyful obedience. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, releases us from legalistic chains to joyful obedience. So the first scene we see here in verse 23, we see the clash in the field. The Pharisees meet him at the grain field, and we see that right there, the clash in the field. 
Verse 23, on the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You'll see in these, both these scenes, the Pharisees are going to bring a charge, and then Jesus is going to give a response. The charge here, with a clash in the field, the charge is harvesting on the Sabbath. They said, hey, you're in violation of the Sabbath because you're harvesting. It's legal to harvest or handpick or pluck out heads of grain in a neighbor's farm, but it's not legal to do that on the Sabbath, no matter how hungry you are, because that's considered harvesting. And you cannot do that between sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. The Pharisees bring this question. They're going to call out a violation. They see, well, he can't give us, I mean, he may give us a stiff arm about the whole fasting custom, but we got him on the Sabbath. So I'm going to call him out. He's going to have to apologize and say, hey, guys, stop, stop, stop. We, you know, we got, went too far. That's what the setup was. I'm going to question him, and he's going to say, you're right. Because they couldn't get him before, but they got him now because they own the Sabbath. And whoever this Jesus of Nazareth, we got you here. What's interesting is the response given by Jesus. Jesus, picking up in um, verse, he answers them that there's a precedent set by King David. He tells them, hey, have you not read? This is a rabbinic style of debate. This is the proper way to appeal. He just said, have you not read? Then he gave them the section of scripture, you know, during the time where this priest's lifetime was, we find in 1 Samuel 21, have you not read what King David did? At that time, David, with his men, when they were outlaws from King Saul, when they were in much need, very hungry, David knew there was something he could get in the house of God. He went to the tabernacle. And he told them, men needs to eat. And the priest asked some questions and gave him the bread that they had no right to. It was there for the priests, not for David or his men. Nor in Scripture do we see God say, you know what, David was out of line there. No. Even though he violated a part of the Torah, he did it because his men were starving. They needed to eat. And the priest said, hey, take the bread. Eat. Now this response is interesting. Because the focus isn't really about Jesus saying, hey, make an exception, let me slide. David and his guys did it. What's really interesting, the focus here, is that he drew comparison to King David. He said, hey, have you not read what David did? To them, a devout Jew, a Pharisee, a leader, David, I mean, he's high up there. You got him up there with Moses and the rest of the prophets, I mean, David. And all of a sudden, there's this guy you have a problem with, and he draws comparison of David, me. I mean, it sounds ridiculous in their ears, maybe not as ridiculous to ours, but imagine if I said, hey, the president of the U.S. gets to do this, thus, I think I have the authority to do also do the same. Oh, that guy's got a whole other higher levels of responsibilities and privileges that I'm never going to be accustomed to. I cannot claim, because of the precedent set by the U.S. president, that I could do something. You're going to look at me as ridiculous, and a lot of people will probably stop me and say, you can't. Enters the kind of the ridiculousness when they hear Jesus say, hey, David did this with his men. 
me and my men could do the same. They're like, wait, were you liking yourself to King David? What's interesting here is when they see that appeal, you know, there's a promise is given. Prophet Jeremiah said, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will raise up a righteous branch for David, he will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. Jesus is saying, hey, look, we know there's a promise of someone being from the seed of David, from King David's line that's going to be reigning. And now he's drawing that comparison. He's making everybody focus. This is me. This one writer said it when it came to the Jewish people. In scripture, tradition, and liturgy, David was enshrined as the inaugurator of a future messianic reign that would be even more glorious than his historical reign. So when he makes a reference to David's visit to Ahimelech, it's significant, you know, because David had eaten the consecrated bread as an exception when he and his men were starving. Jesus, however, does not raise the incident in order to plead for a Sabbath exception for his hungry disciples. He cites David's violation of the Torah not as an excuse for his action, but as a precedent. In making the allusion to David, Jesus is inviting a comparison between his person and Israel's messianic prototype. Here in Mark, we see the beginning, and we'll see it continue on as we journey through, that the appeal to David in our passage begins to define Jesus' authority as the royal son of God, anticipated since the reign of David. So when he gives this answer, it's higher than just let my guys eat. It's more of, this is who I am. For us, that's amazing. That's a, res- a response of worship. But to the Pharisee, they're angry. They don't want to hear that. We see Christ establishes authority over the Sabbath as he clashed with the Pharisees in the field. Now let's move to the second scene where Jesus clashes with the Pharisees in the synagogue. So the clash in the synagogue. Clash in the synagogue. Again, we're going to see the charge. We're going to see the response. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there with a shriveled hand. Now, in order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. This is interesting. They're using this man merely as a pawn. In my mind, maybe it's a slight immaturity on my end, I just imagine the Looney Tunes, you know, cartoons, where you got Wiley Coyote pretending like he's hiding behind something, and I got a trap for him. But you always got the roadrunners three steps ahead knowing what's going to happen. It was that image. It's absurd. They're in the synagogue. You have a man with an issue that needs to be healed, but they're just going, yeah, there's Joey. He's right there. Jesus is about to come in. Get ready, guys. We got him here. How absurd. You enter the synagogue not for worship, but you're wanting to lay a trap on Jesus. So the healing on the Sabbath, you know, Jesus, he enters in, and he tells the, the man with the shriveled hand, stand before me. Probably not what the guy wanted to do. But Jesus was about to make a point here. And then, before the charge could come, he says, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Imagine if you were a non-Pharisee at this moment, you're going, huh? What's he saying? (laughs) Just like before, with the paralytic man coming, Jesus reads the thoughts, he knows what's happening, he knows what they're planning, and he calls them out on the charge they're giving him about healing on the Sabbath. He goes, is it, is it not lawful to do good? And then he says, to save a life or to kill? That's the part where other people in the room were probably going, huh? But 
guilty is the charge of the Pharisees that knew what they were about to do in response to Jesus' healing. You know, spoke in the beginning, you could not do anything more with an injury or anything unless it was life-threatening. You couldn't set even a broken foot or hand. So this guy has a shriveled hand. I don't know exactly what it is, but for the Pharisees, they think, wait till Monday or Sunday to help that guy out. You cannot do it on the Sabbath. They're willing to skip over doing good to keep up appearances that we're not doing any work on the Sabbath, and they take it to an extreme degree that, hey, we're not going to want to call or even ask Jesus, hey, can you heal this guy? Because really we're going to use this as an opportunity to kill him instead of heal the man that is in need. This charge is ridiculous. Jesus doesn't wait. He knows what it is, and he gives his answer. So his response of, is it not lawful to do good on the Sabbath? It's interesting. See, he says it, and then the Pharisees are silent. They don't give an answer. Checkmate. He's, he knows what's happening. You're not going to catch him off guard. He knows. And then Mark writes that he is filled with anger. Mark doesn't use such strong language about how Jesus responds until we'll probably see, you know, Gethsemane with his, those emotions in the garden. Because there's a mixture. He's angry at what's happening, and then you see in the same, you know, sense, and he's grieved at the hardness of their heart. He gives this question. They're silent. They're supposed to lead these people in following Yahweh, yet look what they're doing. It angers him, and it grieves him because he knows what it's costing others around. Because the test of true religion is what do you do when you see someone in need? What is your desire to do good unto others? False religion is self-censored and saying, look at the accolades I have. Hey, everybody pay attention to me. And Jesus is going after and he's attacking that image that the Pharisees have built up. Hey, you would go as far as using this guy as a pawn because you want to keep up appearances when I see there's somebody in need and I'm going to do good. Jesus here doesn't go, hey, hey, disciple, come here. Uh, what's my approval rating here? Should I do this yet or not? So should I wait because I'll bump up 5%? No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't wait. He sees the need and he does good. But the Pharisees, they operated differently. It's a sad indictment of what uh, Judaism is at that point. And they are looking and they're attacking and they're saying, Jesus, you are breaking, you are violating the Sabbath. I mean, he heals the hand. He tells the man, stretch it out. And immediately the Pharisees go to plot to kill him. And they go to the Herodians. Guys, they're not BFFs. They're not friends. They aren't co-workers on stuff. The Pharisees don't like Herod the Great. They don't like Rome. But you know what? Hey, your enemy, my enemy, we're going to be friends right now because we're going to plot to kill this dude. That happens. Jesus knows it's going to happen. Doesn't stop him. He knows what his father's will is. He knows what he's called to do. He is standing up. He is making a declaration for others that are seeing him. They're going, wait a second. He's doing some stuff we don't see. We've heard about these 39 classes of work that we're not supposed to do. We tend to have a very burdensome load when it comes to the Sabbath. We don't try to get out of line. That legalism became chains. And here comes Jesus setting things straight and saying, hey, I bring freedom from this. I want to give you something that's joy that you can rest in instead of a worry and a list to break down. We see the clash in the field. We go clash in the synagogue. But you know what? In the middle of both narratives, 
there's a truth bomb that Jesus drops on the Pharisees. There's a truth bomb in two sentences. So much truth. And what's so amazing about who he is is dropped on them at that time. It's not the healing that's so amazing at that moment. It's not him being able to use David as a precedent to get away from plucking grain on the Sabbath. It's what he says in the middle that is dropping the bomb upon them. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, verse 27, and not man for the Sabbath. So then the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. When you see that title, if we go to verse 28, this theological truth, this theological bomb that he's dropping on those, they're supposed to be very well versed in theology here. He says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. When you go to Daniel 7, the vision of Daniel in Daniel 7 gives us the Son of Man. They will know what he's referring to. In Daniel 7, verse 13, he said, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, I am a son of man. They know, they can recall, this is something that all the Pharisees had to know. And then he says, and I'm even Lord of the Sabbath. You know, in Daniel 7, that ancient of days represents God. This son of man is the vision is brought before God, and God gives him this kingdom. We see this messianic promise throughout Psalms and through other parts of Scripture, and he's supposed to give it to them. So they're looking for their Messiah. They're looking for the Son of Man, and he says the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. They're going, well, hold up. The Son of the Man is supposed to be the Messiah. Uh, the Ancient of Days is God, and who established the Sabbath? Yahweh, God, we've got those laws from him. How can you tell me that the Messiah is even Lord of the Sabbath? Imagine the brain's about to hurt. They're going, what? Now they're probably even more angry. Like, how can you say that those are one? He is proclaiming his deity. And this is what's amazing about the theology that is dropped right there. He goes, me, the Messiah, the Son of Man, is even Lord of the Sabbath. Me and my Father are one. These are terms that will anger the Pharisees. There's a reason why they ran off to kill him, guys. They didn't have to really conjure up much of anything. They were already offended, and a great offense is given to them by this statement. John MacArthur, when writing about this, he makes this comment in verse 28. He goes, Jesus dropped the bomb of all bombs on their self-righteous minds in verse 28. You're wondering where I got the title for this point? John MacArthur just said, drop a bomb. So I was like, I'm adding that. He says, how else can you put it? He drops a bomb on their minds. It will blow their brain. I'm thinking, like, what? He says, you know, Jesus is saying, I am the sovereign ruler over the Sabbath. I am sovereign of this day. I designed this day. I am the creator. This is what he, the statement he's making. When you look at John's gospel, doesn't John say at the beginning of his gospel, everything was made by him, and without him was not anything made? So it was he who ceased to work. It was Jesus who rested. It was he who ordained this day to be blessed in separation 
from work he's putting together. Jesus, God, this deity, me and my father, one, he's saying, I'm the guy that was there at the beginning, created. He says, I'm the sovereign of this day. How dare you put legalistic chains and try to do all these other things? I'm the one that interprets the will of God. I am an interpreter of his will, and as the interpreter of God's word, as the interpreter of God's law, he tells them, hey, Sabbath was made for man and not man for Sabbath. He goes, you got these laws? You got these customs? You're trying to stick with it? Hey, ladies and gentlemen, I'm the lawgiver. How dare he say he's a lawgiver? Only Yahweh gives law. He goes, I am. I'm the lawgiver. And I'm calling you out on this by saying that the Sabbath was made for man and man not for the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath was not just so we could have a correct work schedule for Jews. What was unique about the Sabbath, it's counterculture. God was going to be greatly glorified amongst all other nations if his people kept the Sabbath. Because for any other world power or nation to get bigger and better, you're working around the clock. You don't stop. You're rotating people in and out seven days a week. And all of a sudden, God's saying, hey, no. Seventh day, y'all pause. You rest. Reflect on the truth of who I am and what I've done. And the promise was, is I'm going to greatly prosper you. I'm going to make a great people out of you for my glory, to show who I am to others. Because when people counter you and they figure out, like, you, you, you give up how many days a week? You don't do anything? Your livestock don't even do anything? You just celebrate who your God is? You, you take rest? And somehow you're prospering? That's what it was supposed to be. For God to bless them, for his name to be glorified, but they got it backwards. They said, man, for the Sabbath, all right, guys, here's our rules. Yeah, we've had a very sketchy past. So we're going to triple down on making sure we do everything correct. And all of a sudden, you imagine being a young kid at that time, sunset on Friday, and you're going, okay, where am I at? I can't be too far from home, because also another rule was you couldn't travel more than 1,999 steps or paces on the Sabbath because it was considered work, so a little more than a half a mile. I don't know who's the counter, but that was one of the rules. Got to make sure you got enough food because we can't go back out there and do some stuff. Johnny, don't play too hard because you tear your clothes. I can't sew that. A day that you're supposed to rest and enjoy, and there was so much added to it, it was terrible. God says, you guys got it wrong. This is what upsets them. Him healing the man, they've seen him heal before. But for him to say, I don't care about your Sabbath restrictions, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, and I'm going to heal. You may say, so what, Mike? This is cool, but how does, get to, how does this get to me? You talk about this legalism, but I'm just saying, those Pharisees were some pretty bad guys. Here's where I want you to look at when it comes to your relationship with legalism. There's different categories you could have. One, you may be sitting here today, you thrive in legalism. You might be the person that really good at checking off the list and you get great pride in showing this is who I am. You somehow find rest in your accomplishments more than in Jesus. Or you might be somebody here that you're more bound by those chains of legalism in a negative way. Maybe you're a perfectionist. You're someone 
very quick to give in to worry. And sometimes you don't find rest in the way that you take pride, but you need to make sure you have a very tangible checklist of faith. If I can cover these things because you want to be desirable before God and you feel if I slip or something goes awry, I'm not going to be blessed, I'm going to be missing out. You forget the mercy of God and the grace poured out upon him, but you get in such of a worker's mentality that you have added things to your life, eight, ten extra things, and you're not enjoying a joyful Christian life. It's becoming such a burden, such a worry, because you're bound by your self-imposed legalistic ways. There's another group of people. You're very anti-legalistic. This crowd I call the license to sin. I mean, you're so anti-legalistic, man, I'm going to rebel against the establishment. Yet you don't know that you're setting your own legalistic guidelines for how you think you should live life compared to those that might be too restrictive, too heavy on things. All of a sudden, you are in a different pattern of it. You almost want to do things that cause people to go, oh, ooh, what? And, and those are things you want to accomplish. But you're not finding rest or pride in what you have in Christ. You'd rather be a little bit of the maverick and run by, look at me. I don't do all the rules y'all do, but Jesus still loves me. But in reality, you might be living a life that shows nobody Jesus Christ. And you really, you're just ashamed to have the moniker Christian. Are you so anti-legalistic that rebellious establishment has even hurt you more? The third crowd is looking at people that were wounded by legalism. This is a tough one. Because there's a good chance that those that are wounded by legalism in the church, they're prob- they don't show up on a Sunday. Something happened that hurt them so bad in a legalistic sense, they don't want to come to church. They dare not darken the door of the church. They don't understand that bitterness is not just taking root. It's taking deep roots, and it's grown so much in their lives that they're greatly being hurt day by day by this bitterness they're holding on to because they were wounded by legalism. Oh, May those that were in a position of authority that wounded them, may they repent of their sin. But don't be the person sitting there and wallowing in so much bitterness that you're not enjoying a joyful Christian life. Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17, Paul gives his remedy here for any of these groups. He says, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Why? Why all these things that he's talking about they've added on? These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. At this point, when, God, when Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man, I am even Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, you're going to find joy and comfort and everything in me. I am the Christ. I am the fulfillment of all this. And you're missing it. You're so caught up with your own restraints and tradition and custom, you Pharisees, you're missing who I am. And you want to kill. Believer, do you take pride in your legalism? You're missing out on enjoying Christ. For those that want to be so anti 
legalistic, you're the rebel, you're the maverick, are you really enjoying Christ or are you enjoying sin? And for the one that is wounded, this is hard because you're the victim. But are you finding rest? Are you finding redemption in Christ? Have you sought help with the wound? This isn't small. This isn't something we ever want to overlook. But are you paralyzed in your Christian growth because you maybe punted away anything? Because you dealt with some Pharisees in your past. They've done you wrong. Here's the thing. Jesus gives victory greater than any man can put any opposition or hold you down. Have you turned to him? Have you turned for help? All of those groups, how we deal and touch with legalism, our answer is Jesus Christ. Remember the big idea? Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. This is huge. As when he makes a declaration, he releases us from the chains of legalism to joyful obedience. He says, I want you so caught up on who I am that you're going to want to do my will. Not because I've added chains. My yoke is not heavy. Because for the Jewish people at the time, their yoke was heavy. And he's very angered and he's grieved by the Pharisees. Believer, are you living in joyful obedience? Or has the poison of legalism infected you somehow? Let me encourage you. May we look to Christ. 